For the rest of the hour, a group of animals that are, well, not everybody's favorite. I'm thinking of mice scurrying in your basement, bears rummaging through your trash bins, the pigeons just a little too close for comfort. Yes, we're talking about pests, critters notorious for being destructive and annoying and even villainous. I'm thinking of you, squirrel. But we're going to get a little philosophical also this hour and ask what makes a pest a pest. The answer is not quite that easy. I mean, take the elephant. You wouldn't consider an elephant a pest. It's the fun animal we like to see in the zoo when we feed peanuts to. That is unless you happen to live near elephants. Then they can ravage your crops. They can crush your home. In other words, turn into a life-changing pest. And even the lovable cat, which at the right time and in the right place can and has become, well, not so welcome. We're going to get into that and a lot of other great stuff in a new book called Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. And joining me now is the author, Bethany Brookshire, a science journalist and the author of Pests. She's based in Cheverly, Maryland, and today she joins us from WAMU in Washington, D.C. Hi, Bethany. Hi, thank you for having me. I'll try to keep my fangirling to myself. (laughs) Thank you. Well, what do you mean by uh, the book title, How Humans Create Animal Villains? What do you mean by that? Well, I kind of went into the book trying to figure out what makes an animal a pest. And the short answer to that is that humans do. Right? It's humans that decide that an animal is causing us trouble. And so really the thing that makes an animal a pest is what we think of it and what we believe about it and why we think it's causing us so much trouble. But there are animals that, and you talk about this in in your book, that carry diseases. Did we make that animal a pest? In some cases, yes. um, And in some cases, no. I mean, we carry diseases too as you may have noticed. Fair enough. enough. (laughs) Um, But in a lot of cases, for example, um, animals that carry diseases um, and live in close association with us, we've brought to where they live today. We've brought pigeons to urban environments. Um, We have created places where pigeons and rats love to live, right? We brought them there, and then we got mad when they did well. <laughs> I want to bring our listeners in. If, if you have questions uh, for Bethany this hour, what, what's your take on pests? Maybe you have your own view about it. Our number, 844-724-8255, 844-SCI-TALK, or you can tweet us at uh, SciFry. Uh, we share a common, <laughs> a common pest because your book starts with a character named Kevin. Actually, a more descriptive name for him, effing Kevin. And Kevin is a squirrel. And I've had my own experiences with squirrels. Tell us about Kevin. You have your own Kevins. I'm Uh. so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, well, to be clear, there are at least six Kevins in my backyard. We just call them all Kevin. Wow. Um, And uh, Kevin has prevented me from growing any tomatoes in my garden uh, for the past five years at least. He finds the tomatoes when they're green. He takes a nice big bite. Mm. And then every single time he seems to remember that he doesn't actually like tomatoes. Right. So he leaves the rest of it always right there, just right on the porch where you can see it. I'm with you on this. Oh, it's a mockery. And not only that, but I I remember because I had a tomato plant just like you described, I planted a a hot pepper plant right next to it. And my Kevin saw the plant, 
picked out the hottest pepper that Kevin could find, took it over to the window where I was looking at Kevin and ate it right in front of me, staring in my eyes, saying, oh, yeah? You think this is tough? Give me a toughie. <laughs> Ooh, you've got a hardcore one. You're, you're Kevin is metal. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to admit that they are sort of the most creative animals I've ever seen. They're acrobatic. They can tra- they're trapeze artists. They're tightrope walkers. They're just amazing to watch. I have to give them credit for that. And they have phenomenal spatial memories, which is part of why they recognize that they can keep coming back to your garden. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right that pests are a problem as old as ownership. What do you mean by that? Well, in order to have a pest, a pest is different from a predator, right? Because a predator is something that attacks us. A pest is a little bit less than that. There's something that attacks our stuff, which means that you have to have stuff. You have to have an idea that you own something that you don't want other people to get. And so really, if you don't own things, you can't have pests. Mm. You can only have kind of competition, right? Once you start setting food aside, storing it, then you start to have pests. And that pretty sums up the origin of the house mics. It does. Yes, the house mouse dates back to between 15,000 and 10,000 years ago in the Natufian period um, in an area in the Middle East. And yes, we've had house mice since we had houses, and that was before we even had agriculture. The instant we started storing food and staying in one place, house mice were there. Hmm. And as you say, I think people see pests as, as cheaters in a way. I mean, that they're mooching off of humans But you argue that they're really just winners because they're able to so skillfully do that. Right. I mean, when we take advantage of other species, are you going to call us mooches because we're good hunters? (laughs) I've got a few people I can go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, animals, we create niches that allow animals to thrive, right? right? We create piles of garbage, that allow rats and mice to get by. We create beautiful cities that offer wonderful perching spots for sparrows and pigeons. And then we get angry because they're doing so well when we've built the spaces that they inhabit. So we're creating the environment so so that they can flourish and do what they do. Right. And often we bring them to new places. So, for example, um, it's our ships that bring rats and mice to islands um, or snakes to islands. Mm -hmm. Um, It's us as colonists that bring cats um, to islands where they can often end up as invasive species eating animals that have never seen a predator before. Tell us that's a fascinating story in your book about cats. Tell us that story. Yeah, so I will say first, I am a cat lover. I have two cats. Um, So this was hard. Um, But yes, cats are estimated um, to slaughter between one and four billion birds a year in the United States alone. Um, The real problems are on island habitats. When people bring cats, the cats sometimes escape, they go feral. And, you know, if there are animals that have never seen a cat before, you know, maybe there are birds that don't fly, mm-hmm. right? Um, or, you know, small rodents that are native to the island that have never seen a cat. Um, cats can drive those species extinct. And, and it's now thought that they play a role in at least 63 extinctions um, around the world. No kidding. Wow. Uh, and, and another theme in the book is that people will rage war to get rid of pests. And that was a point about the Burmese pythons and the Everglades, another fascinating story. 
Yes, I had uh, I had the good luck to go Burmese python hunting in the Everglades、um, during one of the yearly python challenges, where they actually send hunters out on the levees in the Everglades、um, to try and bring in the most pythons wins ten thousand、um, dollars, and it's a fascinating example of just、mm. what people will do to try and get rid of an animal that they've called a pest. Let's go to Janet in Martha's Vineyard. Hi, Janet. Welcome to Science Friday. You're first up this hour. Oh, good. You know, it's a very odd thing. I went to the library this afternoon. I live on Martha's Vineyard in West Tisbury. On the shelf was this book called Pest. I don't remember ordering it, so I talked to Laura. She said, "Oh, I thought of you when I, I ordered this book." And in the back was the author with a white rat on her shoulder. So that made me very happy.、Um, <clears throat> I have a pet. Well, I have. I rescued a baby rat. Now I'm not afraid of rats or mice or anything like that. The poor thing was near the manure pile. I have a horse, and it was ice cold. I picked it up in my hand. It fit very. It was so small it fit in the palm of my hand. So I thought, Oh God, why are you sending me this? Because he always does it. I brought him in the house and put him in an aquarium with some nice woolly things, which I warmed up in the dryer. And I thought, What am I going to do? So I got him warm, and I had a. Eyedropper, which I keep for weird occasions like this, <clears throat> and I only had canned milk in the house. I did not have kitty milk replacer, which is what most vets want you to use for wildlife. And I thought, well, he's either going to die. The vets were all closed at this point, <clears throat> and he drank some milk. To make a long story short, he is still with me. He's about four and a half、um, months old. He still drinks milk, but he likes lots of different foods,、hmm. and he's very friendly with me. He makes eye contact. I can actually put him in a trance when I turn him over and rub his stomach, because I guess rats <laughs> like his stomach rubbed. Well, do, do you? So you don't consider him a pest, or any rats? No, a pest I don't.、Then. I mean,、yeah. you know, I heard somewhere that rats have been alive since the、um, dinosaurs. So they must have some kind of intelligence to stay. <laughs> When the dinosaurs passed on, they did not. Well, Janet, thank you for that story. Let me get, go to Bethany. There, there's something you must have heard of.、Uh, pet rats. Yes. Oh yes,、yeah. <laughs> yes. The rat on my shoulder in my、um, photo for my book.、Um, her name was Magrat.、Um, she was a rat of my friends, and she is missed.、Uh, she passed away a little bit after that photo was taken, but、mm. she was a wonderful rat, and she did not actually poop or pee on me during the entire photo session. Which for a rat that. Poops or pees up to eighty times a day is really very impressive. This was a central casting rat, obviously. Oh yeah. yes, new, new, she was new, a natural. Yes, new photo session when it saw it.、Um, our number eight four four seven two four eight two five five. You know, I also find the villain origin story of pigeons remarkable too. We, we bred them to help us until we said, "Eh, not anymore." Tell us that story. Yeah, you know, I, I hate to say that I have a favorite pest because how can one choose the favorite of one's children? But they might be the pigeons. Don't tell the others.、Um, I love pigeons because they highlight, I guess you could say, our hypocrisy.、Um, mm. For many, many years, pigeons were highly valued members of our society. We domesticated the pigeon about five thousand years ago. And we used them because pigeons are wonderful messengers. They have this amazing ability. They go out in the morning, they feed themselves, and they come right back to where they were. They started, and they never lose their way. And they can do this for hundreds of miles. So they make wonderful messengers.、Um, they 
provide lots of pigeon poo, which makes great fertilizer, and they provide delicious pigeon, which if you've ever eaten pigeon, it's actually really tasty. <laughs> um, and so we brought the pigeon around the world with us because it was incredibly useful. People bred the pigeon for its looks. They bred them as messengers. Uh, Darwin devoted a large section of On the Origin of Species to the pigeon. And then we developed the telephone and chemical fertilizer and chicken. And the pigeon stopped being useful to us and we let it go. And it's been fascinating. You can actually look, um, one of my sources, Colin Gerald actually looked at references in the New York Times to the pigeon over a 100 year span and watched the pigeon go from noble and innocent and loyal to a rat with wings. Yeah, that over was over a single century. Uh, that was that was a that was uh, a rat with wings was coined not too long ago, was it? Yes, I believe it was 1967. Yes. Yes. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking with Bethany Brookshire, author of Pests. Uh, have you gotten what kind of reaction have you gotten about your book? Are people saying, you know, you got it all wrong, or gee, you got to see the pests in my backyard? It's coming. You know, you, you might change your, your tune about pests. I, I will say I get some uh, very interested, unsolicited photography. Really? Of animals in some in stages of uh, <laughs> um, death. Ooh. <laughs> Which is odd, but amusing, I suppose. Um, so, yes, I've gotten some interesting photographs. Um, I get a lot of stories. It's funny when you start writing about pests or telling people that you're going to write about pests. Everyone has a story of an animal that just drives them bonkers. Right, right. And, and, and that's what's surprising and wonderful to read about in your book. How many of the animals you wrote about are pests, rabbits, sparrows, feral cats? I mean, where do we draw the line between a friend or foe here? Yeah, it really is a matter of perspective. You know, if an animal is where you want it to be, it's often a beloved pet. It's often um, food. It's often beautiful wildlife. It's when that animal comes into a space that we've decided is ours, mm -hmm. right? When it right. challenges our sense of power and our sense of control, then suddenly we aren't so happy to see them. And, and thinking of some of these animals as pests is sort of a Western value at times, is it not? It is um, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's, it's what I called and what other researchers call a dominion associated mindset. Um, and it's not universal. I was very lucky to be able to learn from a bunch of um, indigenous peoples in various locations around the world. And for many of them, they don't actually like the word pest. They don't use it um, because they don't think of themselves as being in charge. And if you don't think of yourself as being in charge of your environment, it's really hard to think of other animals as being evil or bad or causing you problems. You don't own the place, so they belong there, too. I see. You give them equal treatment. They're not pests. They just live here with us. I wouldn't call it equal necessarily. And certainly you don't always get along with your neighbors, but they are neighbors. They are other members of the society in which you live, and you give them consideration as other organisms that mm. have the right to live where you do. Let me see if I can get a quick call in before the break. Holly in Oklahoma City. Hi, Holly. Hi. Yeah, I, uh, I'm so excited about this topic. I'll definitely check out that book immediately. And I wanted to make sure that 
talks about the insect pests that get so disrespected. Do you have some, some you in me? particular? Yes. Oh, do you, yeah. Which insects? Or yeah, I do. I, I do have some particular ones. Tomato hornworm is one example. Um, I have a lot of gardening friends, and they all talk about squishing those things the minute they find them. And it just makes me wince because tomato hornworms become beautiful, fantastic hawk moths. And I have found that if I have a successful tomato um, uh, crop in a given year, I can easily share with them, and there's room for everybody. There you and go. I don't have those gorgeous creatures. All right. Thank um, you. Thank, another, thank, an- yeah. you. Another quick one, I, Holly. I got to go. I do have, a, <laughs> I do have another one. Uh, snails. People try to kill snails oh, in their yards, yeah. and they don't realize that snail larvae are one of the main foods of fireflies firefly larvae which are you know we're running out of so i just want to point that one out that's good i'm going to look at them differently Uh, bethany snails uh there are actually no invertebrates in my book i'm sorry to say that's in part because there are other excellent books there's an entire book on the mosquito actually um but i thought that vertebrates kind of better highlighted our conflict with the yeah. animals in our midst. I agree. You know, one of the more interesting, not that there was anything not interesting in your book, it's a wonderful book, Bethany, but what really hit home to me about how you classify pests is the story about elephants. Who who can think of an elephant as a pest? Unless you live by the elephants, right? Live, live near them. Well, that's the thing. You live near them. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and, and this was kind of one of the themes that I wanted to highlight in the book is that so often what we call a pest is a matter of belief, right? It's what you believe about the animals. And a lot of us in kind of the global north um, believe that animal, that elephants in particular are wise and beautiful and clever um, and sweet. And, and they are, they are all of those things. I have, I have seen elephants in the wild and they are wonderful. Um, but the people who live with them also deal with a lot of human wildlife conflict. And that's not just the human wildlife conflict we often think of, such as poaching, mm-hmm. which does still happen. Um, but now there is less and less poaching and there is more conflict where you often have elephants um, trampling and eating people's crops. Um, and now, for example, in um, West Africa, African elephants kill about 200 people per year um, and cause millions of dollars in crop damages. And so there are some people um, in you know, Africa and in Asia who would say, yeah, elephants can yeah. be pests. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned that if people store grain in their homes, the elephant will knock the house down to yes. get in. Yes, wow. I, I met a woman who lost her house. Um, and her entire crop uh, to an elephant. And and people have tried creative ways to keep the elephants away. You talk about the, them trying bees, which you have discovered elephants hate. Yes. Uh, and, you know, it, it's so funny because uh, Pliny the Elder spread this myth around that elephants hate mice, but it's not true. They hate bees instead. Um, yeah, and this was actually uh, scientist Lucy King um, who developed kind of the Elephants and Bees Project. Um, and she found through study and also from learning from uh, the indigenous people, the Maasai, um, who live with elephants, that elephants don't want to feed from trees that have bees in them because bee stings hurt. <laughs> and so if you set up fences full of beehives around crops, you can actually prevent elephants from coming by. Hmm. And so now they're spreading these beehive fences. Uh, I think they've uh, 
put them up in more than 20 countries at this point. Hmm. And, and the farmers can't kill the elephants because it upsets the Westerners. Well, it upsets their own government. And hmm. also, people who live with elephants do have respect for elephants. They don't want to kill these animals. They're often a very important part of their culture. They're an important part of their history. In some cases, they're an important part of their religion. Um, but most importantly, on the day-to-day -day basis, if someone in um, Kenya, for example, kills an elephant by accident or on purpose, um, they face millions of shillings, which is the Kenyan monetary system, in fines and life in prison. Wow. wow. Yeah. Wow. Let's move to a different topic. Andrea in Texas. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi there. This is Andrea. I'm in uh, Texas, Central Texas and New Braunfels. I just wanted to call and comment. We, um, I've always loved deer, white-tailed deer. We have a, a huge population here. And until I, I moved to a certain area where they are just, there's so many of them, I have never, I hate them so much now. They've eaten so many of my, eaten so many of my plants. I can't tell you how much money I've spent on replacing plants that they don't always yeah. eat. They take a bite of and pull them out and yeah. leave them there. Um, kind of like heaven, I guess, just more of a burden. Um, but yeah, they're just there. There's so many here and their population has just gotten too big. And um, you see too many of them dead on the side of the road, get hit and people injured and car wrecks and everything. So they're pretty much yeah. a pest in our, our area. Yeah, Andrew, I don't mean to laugh because I know how pestful or pesty deer can be in my own backyard. So, yes. Yeah, very much so. Uh, uh, Bethany, what do you think about deer? Why I, I wrote an entire chapter yep. on deer. <laughs> Um, it's really fascinating that deer have become a pest to so many people because we kind of created that problem by killing off another pest, the wolf, that we did not like. And that is part of what has allowed deer to proliferate so much. And the other thing that has really allowed deer to proliferate is that we have allowed the growth of secondary forests. Um, you know, we often think that, oh, well, we don't live in the forest. We have to go to the forest. Well, actually, if you live in a leafy suburb, you live in the woods. And that means you live in beautiful deer habitat. And mm. we grow so many beautiful uh, plants that we plant, both the decorative ones, uh, hostas are pretty tasty, um, as well as the ones we grow in our gardens. We provide amazing food for deer. And then we don't allow their predators to flourish. Yeah, I I plead guilty to all of that. <laughs> yeah, they've eaten a lot of my lot of my flowers. I could tell whether a squirrel has eaten it, whether a rabbit's eaten it by where it eats it on the plant. <laughs> R.I.P. Your tulips. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you know the the lilies. They love to take the top of the lilies off. And oh, they, they do love lilies. Yeah, love, love lilies. I hardly ever see my lilies. Let's go to John in uh, Richland, Washington. Hi, John. Hello. Yep. Yep. I'm here. Hello. Thank you yes. for um, the call. Um, and Bethany, I really look forward to reading the book. It sounds amazing. It's right up my alley. I'm a, a lifelong bird watcher. And in my backyard this year, I had a bird that, that's really quite rare called a Townsend solitaire. And I was so excited about it. And I was watching it and reading in the book its behavior and then watching its behavior out my back door. And uh, we're watching my cat for my daughter, who's at college. My cat is incompetent. She's declawed. She's not a fearsome predator. And she got to one bird in my backyard. She got to that Townsend solitaire somehow and killed it. And now I have this annoying pet, my, my pet, 
is my pest. So you can't look at lovingly at your cat anymore. I really, it really has altered my relationship in a significant manner. I just, I'm like really frustrated because I got so much joy out of having that bird in my backyard. And, you know, it's, yeah. I, I mean, it's not the cat's fault. I can't be mad at the cat, but right. still. It, Sorry to hear that. It is, it is very sad. I was so excited to hear about your sterling and then it took a dark turn. Yes, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry to bring that down on us, but I mean, you know, it could have been a house sparrow, which I mean, has adapted everywhere as I'm sure you've, you know, like pigeons almost, but anyway, All right. well, thank you for the call. Thank you for letting, well, for letting us know about you sharing your experiences with, with us. Thank you, John. Yeah. The cats, cats have been, can be pests, right? I mean, there have been yeah. cat wars. Yes. Oh, there's in fact an entire book called Cat Wars. Um, yes. And it's, it's also really fascinating how because of what we believe about cats and because we do see and love cats, it can be really hard for us to deal with them when they do cause problems to, you know, um, endangered species, um, for example, because yeah. people really don't want to kill animals that they love. Mm-hmm. But sometimes on, you know, in island situations, there's very little else that can be done. You, you, um, write, you write about cats wiping out the, the mouse population of a whole island. Yes, yes. Um, Iles Danke, I think. Um, yeah, um, off uh, Southern California in Mexico. Yeah. And I mean, they're, they're most famous probably for write, uh, wiping out the Stevens Island wren. Hmm. Um, but certainly those two species are not alone. Cats are obligate carnivores. They love live prey. You know, they're doing what they do. Um, and we have brought them to ecosystems where the animals just aren't capable of handling it. We gotcha. Let's go to Rick in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Hi, Rick. Hi. Um, I, uh, I had a, a comment um, uh, that I teach environmental science and uh, terminology is so important in science um, uh, for, for defining things. But in environmental science, it gets a little tough because uh, we try and put boxes and definitions. And there's so many human-centric definitions when it comes to especially environmental science. Uh, and when we talk about pests, uh, I, I reference a lot that, that we humans came up with that term. And life doesn't care what we call it. Um, and uh, I thought it was interesting that Deer brought up earlier because uh, I teach my students every year that uh, white-tailed deer uh, that we consider huge pests in New England, um, you know, with uh, eating, eating flowers and, and uh, car accidents and stuff, um, how they were endangered at one point in time. At the end of the uh, 1800s, uh, early 1900s, uh, they were almost extinct, hmm. and, uh, and they were a resource for us. And then, uh, and then once we stopped hunting them and we started buying uh, produced meat from farms and stuff like that, um, their populations came back, and, and also with the disappearance of wolves, now now suddenly they're pests for us. Well, thank you for telling us about that. And well, and they're not the only species. You know, we did almost wipe out the white-tailed deer. We also almost wiped out the turkey, uh, the wild turkey, and the black bear uh, from the eastern United States. And now all of those species are thriving in the new habitats that we've created. And we're starting to be bothered by pretty much all of them. Yeah. Thank you, Rick, for sharing that with us. Let's go to Elise in Ashland, Wisconsin. Hi. Welcome to Science Friday. Oh, hi. This is Elise. Can you hear me? I sure can. Go ahead. Excellent. Well, I just wanted to say a few words about the sea lamprey, uh, which, as you probably know, is a really dangerous invasive species up in the Great Lakes because of 
you know, its ability to adapt to, you know, to travel as larvae in bilge water or to just swim up rivers or canals that humans have dug. Uh, you know, they've been in the great, all the Great Lakes for, I think, going on 90 years now. And they're a really serious uh, danger to the, to the ecosystem. And again, that's, that's because, you know, they adapted to the opportunities we gave them. But what's so striking to me is that they were the seafood of royalty across two and a half continents, near as I can tell, all across Western and Central Europe, Northern Africa, in Japan and parts of Eastern Asia, the lamprey, the sea lamprey, was the traditional food of nobles. It's supposed mm. because it's such an unusual species. It's supposed to taste like a mushroom. I've heard. Of course, now it's very hard to do this safely because they've been exposed so much. The ones we have here have been exposed to so much mercury pollution. But yeah, I, I, I like to think there's a metaphor there. You know, it's the seafood of kings, and just as the king is a parasite on the people, yeah. so the food of kings is a parasite on other fish. And, uh, and a final funny moment is that the uh, uh, because they're doing it for King Charles's coronation, they're actually serving a lamprey pie. And I've heard that the Michigan Department of Natural Resources is going to get a royal stamp as the official providers of lampreys that are to the king of England. That's a great that's a great story. I, I got to end it there because I got to go. But thank you for sharing that. That that's, that's a great story. So Bethany, you've given us a lot to think about. What what was the biggest lesson that you learned in writing this book? Oh man, there are so many. Um, I would say the biggest lesson is you know it's all too easy at the end, you know, as, as one of the callers said, you know, a pest is what we call it. It's not what these animals do. And it's so very easy at the end to just say, oh, well, you know, the real pest here is the humans. We're a scourge upon the planet. We are so mean. But one of the things I learned is we don't have to live this way. We don't have to be this way. We can be different. Um, and there are different ways of coexisting with the animals in our environments. And so it was really fascinating to kind of realize that we can change our perspectives and we can change our practices and we can achieve better coexistence without always having to go to war against yeah. the pest. Yeah, there's something I learned the hard way as a gardener in my backyard that you're not going to win this war. Have you tried a good gardener's cage? <laughs> yes, I have kept out. My strawberry patch has a good gardener's cage in it, and you're right. But there are people that there are people there are animals that burrow underground. I've started, you know, noticing all kinds of different things, ways that animals will win this war, if you want to call <laughs> it a war. So you have to coexist, right? I mean, we don't have to, but it's a choice that we can make, and it's one that. I think would probably serve us and our environments better in the long run. Let me see if I can end with a question too from someone who's been hanging on quite a while here. Uh, Brian in Southampton, New York. Hi, Brian. Hi. Go for it. Yes. Um, I, although my uh, comment and question is about an invertebrate, I think that we can weave it into this story because this past, I believe, has had a very strong redemptive arc. This pest has a very good PR team, and I'm talking about the spider. Mm. That in my lifetime, spiders have gone from eek, scream, squish 
to, oh, the children in my life, don't kill it, don't kill it, and then put a cup over it and put it outside. So it feels like, at least in my experience, we've turned, some of us have turned a corner with the spider. That's a good way to end because, yes, people really hate spiders, don't they, Beth? I mean, some people do, but that's one of the things. The more you learn, the more knowledge you have about the animals that you live with, the more you begin to realize their value and learn to coexist a little bit. And so so just just chill out a little bit and try to learn with the learn how to live with these animals. Yeah, you know, knowledge is power. Yeah. Well, uh where, where do you go from here? What's your next uh, idea about pests? Are you writing anything else? Oh, that's a lot of pressure. (laughs) I'm still thinking about pests, honestly. There are so many animals that didn't make it into the book um, and that could have. And, And why didn't they make it into the book? I mostly tried to focus on animals where their stories highlighted kind of the five themes that I really saw as being kind of essential to the definition of pest. But many other animals could have stood in uh, for the animals that I ended up focusing on. Well, it's an excellent book, Bethany. Thank you for taking time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Bethany Brookshire is a science journalist, author of Pests, How Humans Create Animal Villains. She's based in Cheverly, Maryland. And you can read an excerpt from the book. Go to our website, sciencefriday.com slash pests.